Well, I promised last Sunday uh, that we would wrap up our series in the, the Advent season here, Hope of the Ages, by looking into the future. And uh, it's true what they say, whenever you talk about the future, it is always, it's fraught with peril. So let me just say at the outset, let me just get it on the table. I will paraphrase Amos in the Old Testament. I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. So as we speak about the end of days this morning, all I can know for certain is what the Bible says. That's all I can know for certain. I can't know for certain how the events that we see going on around us today might lead us towards the end, even if we can see frameworks and things of that nature. I, I can't know that for certain. But having laid out that disclaimer, I do want to share with you as we open up this morning a few of the things that I see on the horizon as of December 19, 2021. And somebody can now pull up this sermon years from now and either laugh at me for being way off or say, hey, he was pretty close. What I'm reading in Scripture these days and what my research is telling me and what I am reading and hearing from good sound theologians and good observers of our world tells me that life on this planet in the next 5, 10, 20 years is going to look so radically different than it does today that we are not going to believe it. We're not going to believe it would even be possible. Now, that's actually not an outlandish proposition because the acceleration rate of change happening in our world right now is off the charts. It's nothing like it has ever been seen in human history. And that is especially true when we talk about technology. For an old guy like myself, the things that I've seen in my lifetime are absolutely stunning. I remember very well, vividly as a kid, watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon in 1969. My little 15-inch black and white television in my room with the rabbit ears, the antennas, you guys remember? Some of you do. Jeff Steele. <laughs> now catch this. The iPhone in your pocket or purse right now has 100,000 times more processing power than the onboard computer that got those astronauts on Apollo 11 to the moon. Just on your phone. Your single phone has as much computing power in it as a giant storage room of mainframe computers in the 1970s. And all that happened within just a portion of my lifetime. So think about that crazy rate of change. Now here's the thing. You think that's fast. What's about to come down the road, I'm told, that's going to look like child play. Things are happening so fast. And the thing that we're learning is this change that's coming our way is not just going to affect us technologically, it's going to affect us culturally and socially and economically and, yes, religiously. If Jesus doesn't return in the next decade, I think we are going to look at each other 10 years from now and say, do you remember what life was like in 2019? Can you even remember that before the pandemic hit? We're going to ask that question. You don't have to look far these days, by the way, or strain your research abilities to see what the people, the puppet masters of our world are getting to, the billionaires and the elites in our culture. All you have to do is look at a couple different places. If you look at the World Economic Forum, right now you'll see it. You look at what they're talking about in Davos, Switzerland. You look at the International Monetary Fund, and you will see what's on the agenda. And you should look at it. It's very, very interesting. Here's some of the concepts that may be familiar to you now, but they're going to become very familiar in the next five to ten years. In fact, they're going to be, become so familiar that soon you will think that's just a normal part of life, even though today it's not. 
For example, things like blockchain and gene editing and 3D printing and AI and robotics and social credit scores and nanotechnology, digital currency, the Internet of Things, carbon credits, and many more. All flying under the banner of of phrases like the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the Great Reset. And you need to know this. This is not just technology. Like in the past, they said, well, you know, computers and phones are all going to make our life easier. Remember the promise? (laughs) Make our life more efficient? This is very different. The stated goals behind the things I just mentioned have the potential to go down a very dark and sinister path to affect things like population control and education and food production and equity and social justice. And the biggest one of it all, the one thing that is driving most of what's happening at that level in the elites of our world is this sort of difficult to pin down phantom of climate change. Ultimately, the elites know that a global governing body is essential to meeting the goals that they're setting for the world right now. In their own words, they see a globalist state as a necessity for solving what they call the existence of the planet and the existence of the human species. And if you're up out there right now, you're like, oh, Jeff's doing the conspiracy theory thing. I'm not. This stuff is not being hidden. Conspiracy theories, by definition, are things that fly under the radar. This thing is out in the open. They're openly talking about it on websites and such. The Great Reset is out there for everybody to see. In fact, the head of the World Economic Forum, I'm going to put his picture on the screen, his name is Klaus Schwab, and he should be a Bond villain, clearly. I mean, right, right out of central casting, German, of course, right? Uh, uh, he, is, he is a, the way he talks, the way he, everything about him says Bond villain, and yes, he does wear strange outfits like you see on the right that with weird symbols on it that, that sort of freak me out. But you have to know that he is talking about the global reset. He is writing books about it. He is making speeches about it. He's doing podcasts basically branding this whole idea of the global reset. And here's what he's on record as saying. He called the COVID-19 pandemic, quote, the perfect tool to usher the world toward the need for a global reset. He said that openly, using the pandemic. And here's the thing, presidents have signed on with him, and prime ministers, and naturally the Vatican as well. So we we have that going for us. So the practical end of all this is to fundamentally, and this is their quote, fundamentally restructure the world's economy by combining the globalized nature of the modern world with all of the technological advances coming down the road. And who knows where that's going to take us except the Lord, right? So, I I do this as a sort of a, just an entree. My goal this morning is not to freak you out. Trust me, I don't want to do that. The end of days could come in my lifetime, or it could be hundreds of years from now. We just don't know. But when we talk about the future, we have to remain balanced. Remember, on the one hand, Jesus told us to be alert for this. He said that as believers, we should be able to read the signs and know that He is near. So that's one thing. We shouldn't ignore eschatology. But on the other hand, we're not to live in a state of worry or anxiety. That's why Paul wrote on multiple occasions to churches in the first century saying, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about these things. At the same time, he said, I don't want you to be troubled about them because God is sovereign. Amen? 
So here's the hope that we're going to talk about this morning. In light of all of that, in light of what I see coming down the road, that yeah, it's piqued my interest. I'm watching. The hope that we're talking about this morning, regardless of the specific timing, is the coming to this planet of an age, an age that in our finite minds, we cannot even fathom. Just as God intervened in the world 2,000 years ago, sending forth His Son to take on flesh, and who could have imagined that plan, right? Just as He did that, He has promised to come back and establish His kingdom on the earth. Do you believe that? We talk about it, we say it, but have you actually thought, what if it happens soon? Do you believe it? Do you trust God's Word on this? Because this is truly our hope. All right. We're going to go back to our timeline just because, hey, I love timelines. But more than that, we're finishing up our series, so it's good to sort of walk all the way through from week one to week four. Interestingly, today we're going from eternity past to eternity future in four Sundays. Mark that down. That's a record. Okay. But real quick, let's go through our, our, our review here from week one to week four. First of all, we talked about the great eternal decree of God, where he laid out all things before the foundation of the world. We talked about creation and the fall and i know grant loved my little fall icon right so great and the flood right and then we got into some of these key players in the old testament abraham the abrahamic covenant from genesis 12 through 22 we talked about the patriarch patriarchs isaac and jacob and how the seed comes through the line of jacob's son judah right then we talked about Moses and the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 and the giving of the law, and in particular, the identification of the land that was then given to the Jewish people through Joshua. Then we came to the very important passage in 2 Samuel 7, David. David's throne as a king. But then the disappointment of Solomon and his son as the kingdom was divided into north and south right around the year 1000 B.C., and then God sent prophets. As the people spiraled down into sin, God sent prophets to, to both Israel in the north and Judah in the south from Obadiah to Malachi over about a 400-year period, persuading them to come back to the Lord, to turn from spiritual adultery and idols and come back to the Lord. And then I promise that we go on to another, another uh, uh, timeline this morning. Then came the intertestamental period, this very strange period between Malachi and Matthew, 400 plus years of prophetic silence in the land. If you were a Jew, I asked the question last week, what would you think of that? How would that affect your spirit? Not having a prophetic voice in the land. Then we have the coming of, of Bethlehem, the Christmas story, right? Right around the year 4 BC, John the Baptist comes as the forerunner of the Messiah. We have the life of Christ, we have the cross and the empty tomb, the birth of the church soon after. After that comes, of course, the period where the New Testament is written, from James somewhere around 45 to Revelation somewhere in the mid-90s. Now, what I put on the top of there is something called the time of the Gentiles, and that is a phrase used by the gospel writer Luke in Luke chapter 21. He calls this period after the resurrection the time of the Gentiles. Paul actually reinforces that in Romans 11. He talks about a period of time where the fullness or the full number of the Gentiles needs to come into the kingdom. And that sort of sets the tone as now we walk through uh, the rest of our time today. So let's back up for a quick moment. I want you to think about some interesting questions that get raised right around the time 
of Christ's birth in Bethlehem. First, in Luke 1, we're told that an angel was sent to Mary, right? And this angel goes to Mary, it's Gabriel, and he announces to Mary this very unique plan that God has for the the coming of the Savior into the world. And of course, angels, we should pay attention to them because they are what? They're messengers that come from God. They speak only what God tells them to speak, so we should listen carefully to what they say. Here's what the angel said to Mary. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. That's one of the great understatements of Scripture. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And look at this section. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Okay, so that goes back to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So what does it mean? And oftentimes we rewrite over these statements. What does it mean that Jesus will sit on the throne of David? Is that, is that just a spiritual thing? It's a spiritual throne. Or is there something more to that? Is that a, a literal, physical throne? Because the answer to those questions is going to tell us something about God's plan for the future. Then in the next chapter of Luke, we read about the praise that the angels sing about over the birth of the Christ child, Luke chapter 2. It says, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, key phrase, on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Or some translations say, peace among men on whom his favor rests. So two things come out of that declaration from these angels, okay? Remember, I talked about it last week. The, the, the Old Testament saints have been waiting so long for the coming of the head crusher, right? The coming of the, of, the, of the Messiah. That when it finally happened, the angels all wanted to be there. They all wanted to, to sing over the Christ child there in Bethlehem. Two things come out of it. Number one, glory to God. First and foremost, I said this last Sunday, this is the greatest miracle in the Bible by far that God would condescend to take on humanity and and come in the form of a helpless baby, knowing that this life that he's leading will lead to nothing but suffering and death. And still to decree it to be so. And you say, well, why? Well, for the sake of love. So that many sons and daughters like you and I would be saved from the wrath to come. That's why. What an obvious and stunning manifestation of God's glory So it's no wonder that this vast multitude of angels wanted to be there in Bethlehem on that night. So glory to God. And number two, peace on earth. Now don't miss the qualifier there, right? Peace on earth for a subset of humanity, those whom God favors. What does that mean? We'll find out as we go along. But this much is sure, peace is spread wherever this child is proclaimed and then received by faith. Peace between man and between a holy and just God, which is a miracle as well, is it not? That sinful man can be reconciled to a perfectly holy and just God. And so the angels are praising God because he has chosen. He didn't have to do it. He has chosen to delight in bringing the peace of salvation to sinners like you and I. That's amazing. So there's this, this glimpse of what we call the great exchange taking place here at Christmas time. Worship that ascends from us to Him and peace that descends from Him to us. His glory, our hope. Make sense? Okay, 
So that raises some interesting questions, and, and you'll see as we go along why those are important. But let me ask you a couple... Uh, whoa, answer these questions in your mind. Think about this for a second. At the first coming of Christ, had the kingdom of God arrived? Don't say it out loud. Just think in your mind, yes or no. Had the kingdom of God arrived at that point? Number two, at the first advent of Christ, was Jesus a king? Think about that. And at the first advent of Christ, was peace on earth established? Okay? The picture that you get in the Gospels, in the teachings about the kingdom as they unfold, is that the kingdom of God is both present and yet still future. And you've heard me use this phrase before, right? The kingdom is already and it's not yet. It is real and it is here now, but it's not fully realized. And we have to hold that intention as we live here on the earth, okay? So has the kingdom of God arrived? Yes, but there's so much more to come. Is Jesus a king? Absolutely, but there is so much more to be revealed about him to us. He's always been the same, but more will be shown to humanity. Was peace on earth established? Yes, in a gospel sense, peace was established between God and, and man, those who trust in his son. We do have that. It's, assured, it's given to us, uh, uh, assured to us, right, in the here and now. But friends, there's an even greater peace to come. So it's already and it's not yet. Make sense? All right, so we're going to walk into the end times. And the one promise I'm going to say is I'm not going to get to every detail. So you don't need to email me or text me tomorrow and say you, you missed this piece. I get it. I, I, I've, Adam's grinning over here because he has been, how many years have you been after me? Ten years to do a series in Revelation. Killing me. Killing me. Maybe someday we'll get into it. Maybe someday. But I'm not going to get to every detail today. What I want to focus, on, focus in on is the hope that we have in the coming kingdom when it comes in all of its glory. So, question. What will happen when this age that we live in, and this is the only age we, we know, the only age we really understand because this is what we're used to. What happens when this age ends and something brand new comes in? What's next? I think that's a natural question that we all ask, right? We wonder, well, what's coming next? In fact, the disciples in Jesus' day asked him about it. And wouldn't you? I mean, I've got, you've got the Lord of glory right there. Hey, go to him in private. Jesus, what's going to happen next? Well, they did. Matthew 24 says, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? Now, Jesus had just talked about the end. He said, when will these things happen and what will be the sign? The sign of your coming in the end of the age. How many of you guys remember how Jesus responded to that question? It was not rainbows and unicorns. It was not, oh, well, let me tell you how amazing this is going to be. The next 25 verses, Jesus talks about things like tribulation and martyrdom and being hated by the world and apostasy and betrayal and lawlessness. That is not seeker-friendly teaching. But he said, those, the one who endures to the end will be saved. So there's the promise that comes out of it. Here's the thing, guys. Both the Old Testament and the New, and we tend to focus on the New because it's easier, right? But both the Old and New talk about a time of great distress that is going to come upon the world 
in the final years of this age that we live in. Both do. The type of distress that has never, never before been seen on the earth. And that is saying a lot because there's been some serious brutality in the history of our world, right? Serious brutality among men. But Scripture tells us that God has a very specific purpose in it for this particular age, for the Gentile nations. When this new age comes, it will mark the end of what Luke called the time of the Gentiles. It will mark the end of that time. There will be great suffering across the entire earth among the Gentile nations. For Israel, it will be a time of discipline and purging in preparation for the arrival of her Messiah and the arrival of the kingdom in all of its glory. So lots of the same things will be happening on the earth, but different purposes for the Jews and the Gentiles. In Jeremiah 30, the prophet writes this. He says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And then he goes on to call it the day of Jacob's distress. Jacob being Israel, right? The day of Jacob's distress. Daniel predicts the same thing. Daniel 12.1 And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred. Never. It appears that during this time of tribulation, a world government will come into being, headed by a man of extraordinary evil. And for a time, he will hold the entire world in his power. He will be a satanic imitation of the true and rightful king. And great persecution will break out against the church. Many will be martyred. All those who trust in Jesus will be under threat. But finally, it says that this, when this Antichrist tries to deify himself by standing up in the temple of God and declaring himself to be God, that's when God will pour out his wrath upon the earth. And it will be so bad in those final years of this age, it will be nothing but chaos and destruction and death on a scale that we can't even comprehend. Both the Old and the New Testament speak of it. Now that's the bad news. That's really bad news. But here's the good news, right? Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Revelation 19. I told you we'd do Christmas and Revelation. Just keep your finger in Revelation 19 and 20. That great tribulation period, this chaos on the earth, is going to come to an end with the sudden return of Jesus to the earth. Remember, Jesus is the head crusher of Genesis 3. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the true and rightful eternal Davidic King. He is all of those things. He is, go- he is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. And He will end this tribulation period by coming back physically. Now, what is the second coming going to look like? How many of you guys have ever dreamt about it? Like, I'm a- How do you picture the second coming of Christ? It's like nothing we can really imagine. It's like nothing the world has ever seen. But... Again, the very same person, born in Bethlehem into a manger, God the Son, will once again step out of heaven and once again enter into physical time and space. Let's not get this mixed up. It's not two different persons. It's one person, two advents. And this time it's going to be very different, right? He is not going to arrive as a helpless baby. And he is not going to arrive as the suffering servant filled with mercy and forgiveness. This time... He will come in His glorified form. Now, what does that look like? I don't know for sure, but I want you to think about this for a second. Think of what a divine being in a glorified physical body looks like. One with unlimited lethal power and authority 
who now walks the earth judging everyone around him and destroying and punishing the enemies of God. What does that look like? I don't know. But wow. Think about this. Here's here's what the Old Testament prophet said about it. Jeremiah said, The Lord will roar from on high. He says, The Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will enter into judgment with all flesh. And as for the wicked, He has given them to the sword. Listen, those slain by the Lord on that day will be from one end of the earth to the other. Think about that. The Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion, Isaiah says. Burning is his anger, and dense is his smoke. He will shake the nations back and forth in a sieve. What does this look like? The Lord will come down, Micah declares, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split like wax before a fire. Behold, God promises through Zechariah, a day is coming when I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. In that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So this is a physical thing. He ascended from that place and He will come down in the same way, but now glorified, right? His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. If you've been to Israel as I have, and you've seen the Mount of Olives, and you think what kind of power it takes to split it into two, this is quite a scene. Near is the great day of the Lord, Zephaniah writes. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of trumpet and battle cry. I will bring distress upon men, God declares, because they've sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying end, of the inhabitants of the earth. Wow. Now, look at Revelation 19. In your Bibles, verse 11. Because John the Apostle saw this terrifying vision as well and described it for us here. Here's what he saw. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges... And wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one except knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is not the baby of Bethlehem, is it? So Jesus will wage war when he returns against his enemies. And he will put down all rebellion and he will remove every human empire from the earth. And he will make preparations for the reign of his righteous government on the planet. 
Now, it's not all destruction and mayhem because there's a second purpose that God has here. Here's what Isaiah says. The Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over it and rescue it. Jeremiah has the most to say about this. He says, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and be quiet and at ease and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. But this is also true, he says to Israel. I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. God's mercy and His justice will be expressed to Israel. So, when we step back and we look at the whole of the kingdom promises in the Old Testament, and then we sprinkle in Revelation 19 and the eschatological references in the New Testament, here's what we learn. At the time of the Gentiles, when it comes to an end, Israel is going to come back front and center in God's plan. Israel comes back into the spotlight. As the time of the Gentiles dawns, as it goes down, up comes Israel, front and center in God's plan. The tribulation period is for Israel's preparation. You have to understand that. The purpose of that tribulation is for Israel to be prepared so that when the second coming happens in Israel on the Mount of Olives, it is their great aha moment. And they see Jesus as their Messiah and they realize they've made a huge mistake. It'll be devastating for them. Zechariah talks about it in Zechariah chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will be devastated when they see that was our Messiah whom we rejected. But in spite of the bitter weeping and the discipline that God is going to bring upon them, as we heard in Jeremiah 30, as I was reading, Israel is still encouraged not to fear, but to look forward to their deliverance. God is going to regather them from the nations, and He's going to bring them back to a restored land. And they'll be given safety and prosperity, and they will be given a place of honor amongst all the nations of the earth. And all of this makes sense because when you read the Old Testament prophets, and I know that's not a popular thing to do. Nobody just you know, opens up Obadiah and starts reading. I get it. But when we read the Old Testament, we find out that the theme of God's kingdom being established on the earth is everywhere. It's in the, built into the covenants that God makes with men. It is all over the prophets. It is everywhere that God is going to do this. They speak of a time when God will completely restore to the, to the land of promise His people. And this prominent theme that runs all the way through, it says that the people are going to live in safety and security under the reign of their Messiah King. You see it over and over again. Interestingly now, and this is something that's overlooked, the Apostle Peter, preaching to a group of Jews on the day of Pentecost in his second great sermon, actually refers to this. We're going to look at it. It's in Acts chapter 3. Again, Peter is preaching here at the birth of the church to a group of Jews. And he says, But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, right, that his Christ would suffer, 
He has thus fulfilled. What a great statement. There's an acknowledgement there that the first advent of Christ was about what? The Christ coming to suffer. That, he says, is done. It's complete. It's fulfilled. And now he goes on. He says, Therefore, my Jewish friends, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. In order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, get this, and that he may send Jesus. Now, Peter's preaching, Jesus has already been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And here Peter's saying, send Jesus. He's talking about the second coming. He's talking about asking God to send Jesus back to earth a second time. And then he goes on. He says, that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, your Messiah, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. Now he's looking ahead, isn't he, to the messianic age, about which God spoke spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. He is talking to these Jews about their expectation of the messianic era. And this is the hope of every Jew in that day. I mentioned mentioned this to you last week. One of the great reasons why the Jews struggled to trust in Christ as their Messiah in the first advent is because he didn't fulfill all the expectations of the Messianic era. The prosperity and the safety, right? And all of these things that the Old Testament prophets talked about. But listen, if we're going to do sound biblical theology, we've got to get this point right. The Jews are God's forever chosen people. If we don't get that right, we are going to make all kinds of mistakes, especially in our eschatology. They are the apple of his eye, God declared. And in spite of what we see going on around us, that unique relationship between God and his people, the Jews, has not been nullified by the last 2,000 years of unbelief. I mean, we see it and we go, oh, that can't be, because what Israel today is not believing Israel, is it? It is a secular nation. And we well, maybe God's given up on them. No. No. In fact, Paul confirms this in Romans 11. He confirms that there's a hardening of Israel's heart during this age, the time of the Gentiles. A hardening of Israel. But he also denies that Israel has lost her place in God's plan. Let's look at this important passage from Romans 11. Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you'll not be wise in your own estimation. And who's he talking to? Gentiles. You Gentiles. Right? He's talking to people like us. Most of us here are Gentiles, right? I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God, way back in the eternal decree, he has marked out a certain number of Gentiles to be saved. And the kingdom will not come, there will not be the end of this period until every single one of those Gentiles comes into the kingdom. But look what he says after that. And so all Israel will be saved. Come back to that. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant, God says, with them. When I take away their sins. What a promise. God says, I'm coming to Israel. I will remove their sin. I will take away their ungodliness. And we say, when? That's the big question, right? Look how it ends. From the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, Gentiles. 
But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved. For the sake of the fathers or the patriarchs, listen to this, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't change His mind about His people. Irrevocable are the privileges that Israel has. They're gifts, they're calling from God. So even though she rejected her Messiah at the first advent, Israel is still the root of our faith, is it not? It's the root of the Christian faith. Israel is the natural olive tree, and we Gentiles are just wild shoots that have been grafted in to that original tree. We have to know that or else we become proud, which is what Paul is warning us against. It's from Israel that we have the fathers of the patriarchs. It's from Israel that we have the seed of Abraham. It's from Israel that we have the seed of Judah. It's from Israel that we have the seed of David. It's from Israel and for Israel that God the Son took on flesh. We just happen as Gentiles by the grace of God to be grafted into the beauty of that reality. And that that enough is a reason to praise the Lord. We had no right but God has grafted us in. So, as we read the promise of Romans 11, when the full numbers of Gentiles has been saved according to God's sovereign will, that's when this partial hardening of Israel will be lifted. They will see their Messiah whom they've pierced. And as Paul writes, all Israel will be saved. All that means is there's going to be a great outpouring of salvation among all the elect Jews of Israel when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives. Because they're going to see him in great power and glory. And they will bend their knee and they will mourn and they will cry out to be saved. What an incredible promise. Isaiah says of this, he says, In that day the branch of the Lord, which is a, a great messianic title, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel, those who make it through the great tribulation. It will come about that he who is left in Zion, the ones who survived and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst. That is not New Testament. That is Isaiah predicting that God will do that in Israel when Christ returns. Through Hosea, God promised it this way, I will heal their apostasy and I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Why? Because now they're believing Israel. They're not today, but when Christ returns, they'll be believing Israel. And God's wrath and anger will be turned away. Man, the second coming is big, isn't it? There's going to be so much going on. Now, what comes next? This is where the real hope comes in this morning. The real hope. As you know, when Jesus came the first time, he did not sit on a literal king's throne. You're not going to find that anywhere in the Gospels. But as decreed by the Godhead, his first advent wasn't about sitting on a throne. It was about mercy and about sacrifice. For him, it was about becoming the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, the story, he was rejected by his people, crucified by Rome, buried in a grave, then risen to life, ascended back into heaven, and then seated at the right hand of the Father in power. We know that story. Well, what about now? What's going on? Well, he's awaiting the day of his return in power. What is that day called? 
It's the inauguration of what we call the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom. Call it the messianic era. That's Israel's perspective. We call it the millennial kingdom. How many times have we read or heard Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, especially at Christmas time? We know this verse almost by, by heart. These phrases you see on the screen. But how many times have we read over it without really processing through the claims being made here? A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. We love that. It's on the front of every Christmas card. And the government, that's a physical thing, isn't it? The government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Messianic titles, right? Equating him with Yahweh. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it. Establish it. And to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's what he'll do. Wow, there's a lot in there, isn't there? About a literal kingdom. Later in chapter 24, Isaiah speaks of it again. First of all, he talks about the second coming. He says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. But then he writes, The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He will reign there on Mount Zion. Have you guys been to Israel? You've been to Mount Zion. You know right where it is, right? You can see it in your mind's eye. He will reign there. And His glory will be before His elders, it says. Then in chapter 33, again, hear the physical nature of Isaiah's words. He says, Your eyes will see the King in all His beauty. Don't we sing a song, Grant, like that? The King in all His beauty. Your eyes will see the King in all His beauty. He says, look up Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. And there, the majestic one, the Lord will be for us. The Lord is our king. This is the hope of the Old Testament saints. This is our hope as well. Listen to Zephaniah rejoice. Because of all this, he says, shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, He says. You will fear disaster no more. Wow. And then once again, look in your Bibles again. Let's go over to Revelation 20. John, the apostle, also saw the establishment of this throne, this reign. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, right? That's the serpent of Genesis 3, right? Who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. So we know now that the devil is eventually going to be restrained by God at some point in the future, right? Until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time, 
John says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Physically reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I don't have time to go through the mark of the beast and all that good stuff. Adam and I did a whole underground segment on it. Look it up. It was fun. Um, And by the way, trust me, next season on the underground, which starts in about a month, we're going to start unpacking more of this stuff because this is so important for us to pay attention to. But there is a literal physical reign being described here. And listen, unless you just ignore the language or just spiritualize everything, there is no conclusion to come to except that this is something literal. This is not just some spiritual nebulous thing to point to. And having said that, I realize that some of us here are what we call amillennialists. And, and listen, I res- there are many people who hold to an amillennial position that I truly respect. Some of my great heroes of the faith, great theologians. And an amillennial believes that there is no millennial kingdom, that the next thing that happens just Jesus comes back and we go straight to the eternal state. My problem is, and I always come to the text, especially in a week like this, and I try to open my mind to what they have to say. And I come to it and say, all right, Lord, if I'm missing something, please tell me. Please show it to me. And every single time I come away thinking, there just is no way to spiritualize all these prophecies, hundreds of them, to make it seem that there's no millennial kingdom, that it's all spiritual in nature. So amillennialists, again, not trying to offend anybody here, but you have to spiritualize any verse that talks about the kingdom of God or the throne of David. For example, an amillennial will say that Christ is now fulfilling the Davidic covenant in heaven. Right? They claim that he's seated on David's throne at the Father's right hand and that he's reigning over a spiritual kingdom, which really is known as the church. That's the general line. But here's the problem. According to Scripture, Jesus is not sitting on the throne of David in heaven. He's not. He's sitting at the right hand of power, the right hand of the Father. The only throne mentioned in heaven is God's throne. There is no mention of David's throne in heaven. That cannot be. Today and until the second coming, Jesus is functioning as what? Our high priest, our intercessor, and that has no connection to the kingly office of David. That is a priestly function. Nowhere in the Davidic covenant is there a modification that allows David's throne to be anywhere except on the earth in Jerusalem, a physical throne. So I think we need to be careful not to spiritualize all these verses too much. There's something physical and literal happening here. Now, I I could do a whole half hour on that, but I'm not. Adam, write that down for the underground. We'll do a whole premillennial, amillennial thing. It'd be fun. Anybody wants to come into the studio and chat about it? It'd be fantastic. Anyway, here's what's really cool now about the millennium. Because so far, I've really just talked about Israel, but I want you to know that the Bible promises that Gentile believers like you and I, we will be a part of this kingdom as well. We're not left out here. We will benefit greatly. We should cheer on the prosperity and the establishment of Israel, believing Israel. Because we're going to benefit from it. At some point during the tribulation period, not going to get into the controversy, some people believe at the beginning of the tribulation period, I happen to believe later on in the tribulation period before God's wrath is poured out, 
But somewhere in that process, we are going to experience what is known as the rapture of the church. Okay, the rapture of the church. It's part of what Revelation 20 calls the first resurrection. So if you want to refer to it as that, that's fine. But it's the moment when Christians from every age will be resurrected and together will be caught up in the air with whatever believers are on the earth at that moment. And together we'll be, we'll be caught up into the air and in that moment our bodies will be transformed into its imperishable form. Again, I don't know what that looks like. I cannot wait to feel it, experience it. It's going to be amazing. But we'll be transformed into an imperishable form. And then soon, again, I can't tell you how many years, but soon at the end of the Great Tribulation period, we will all return to the earth with Jesus and we will rule and reign with Him during the millennial period. This is our future, which is really, really cool. Now, finishing the passage in Revelation 20, verse 6, it's in your Bible, it's on the screen. It says it right here, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. We can't die in the millennial kingdom. All right? But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. That's pretty cool. Now, what does that look like? I have no idea. I mean, I've tried to picture in my mind, what does it look like to come back to earth with Christ in a glorified form? Where do we go? <laughs> what do we do? Do we just wait till Jesus tells us? I don't know. We're just not given those details. But again, I can't wait to find out. Darren and I, we used to joke about this many years ago. We'd talk about coming back with Jesus. And we used to joke, remember this? We used to joke about, we'd be the two guys on the horses getting in front of Jesus. And he'd be going, hey guys, behind me. Right? Because we're so anxious to get back, right? And to, be, and to partner with Jesus in this millennial kingdom. Hmm. Don't know what it looks like. But let me share with you a little bit about what life looks like during the millennial period. This is the hope that we have. So I want you to get it. I was doing this over the last couple of days. I got so excited. I mean, I was just, I was like, oh, I got to start writing because I'm just reading. I'm just having so much fun reading. But let me give you a, a few things that we're going to find in this millennial kingdom. First of all, Jesus is going to reign as king over the entire world. People will still be all over the globe, including North America, but Jesus will be king over the whole world from Jerusalem. Isaiah, again, the government will rest on his shoulders. Micah declares that in the last days from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zechariah declares the Lord will be king over all the earth, in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Isaiah adds, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everywhere. Recall how Jeremiah proclaimed this amazing truth, speaking about the, the new covenant, but then looking beyond that, he said, behold, days are coming when they will not teach each other again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord. Why? He says, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Every person on the earth at the outset of the millennial kingdom will be a believer. Jew and Gentile, every single person will have a knowledge of the Lord. Can you imagine what this world's going to be like? That is amazing stuff. Isaiah, Zechariah, and Micah all prophecy, prophesy 
that the, the, the city of Jerusalem and the area of Israel will be radically changed. Topographical changes. The whole area will be lifted up. Jerusalem will become what's called the chief of the mountains. Ezekiel describes in detail how the city itself will be surrounded by this massive outer wall with 12 gates, one section for each tribe of Israel. And then Jesus himself in Matthew 19 made a specific promise to his disciples while they were sitting there. He said, truly I say to you that you who have followed me, he says, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall, shall, wow, shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm so excited I can't talk. This is amazing stuff. Now, stop for a second. Can you imagine living on the earth during this time? This is amazing. This is the hope of the ages. To live where King Jesus is physically ruling in Israel. Can you picture the pure joy and peace of living in that age? Amazing. Number two. Jesus' government will be marked by peace, righteousness, and justice. Finally. Finally, corruption will be no more and greed, and inequality, and double standards in society. They'll all be done away with. The poor and the oppressed will finally have a voice in society. Recall again how Isaiah prophesied, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Then Isaiah says in chapter 11, with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Doesn't the world cry out for justice and fairness right now? Jeremiah reports that in this age, we will start referring to Jesus as Yahweh Tzedek, the Lord our righteousness, because that's what will mark his rule from Jerusalem. Then Isaiah adds this exciting feature in chapter 2. He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people. He's, gonna, he's the judge over the entire world. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Peace will cover the globe. Think about that. And on top of that idea, this idea that conflict goes away, even the animal world goes through changes because of all the things happening in this perfect world. Isaiah famously says that in the millennial period, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling will lie down together. Can you fathom it? Imagine now living in a world where there's no more lying politicians and there's no more failed governments and there's no more corrupt judges or courtrooms where truth and fairness prevail all the time. Can you imagine the joy of living in a kingdom where there is absolutely no threat of war, where you can actually sit down and pet an animal that you knew used to be dangerous? This is the hope of the ages. This is exciting stuff. Number three, Jesus will have a house of worship built for him, a millennial temple. Now, there's some controversy that goes with this one. I don't have time for the details, Write that down, Adam. We'll talk about it. But here's the thing. You cannot ignore the book of Ezekiel when it comes to the millennial temple or what we call the third temple. 
Ezekiel devotes nine chapters from chapter 40 to 48 describing in amazing detail how this millennial temple is going to be built and what it looks like. He gives the dimensions. It's going to be much larger than either Solomon's temple or Herod's temple. Remember, all of Jerusalem topographically in every way is going to change and there's going to be this massive millennial temple. He even says a great river is going to flow out of it into the south. God says through Ezekiel, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them. And then catch this. There's going to be something like a Shekinah glory over the entire city of Jerusalem. Isaiah 4. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. Wow. What a scene. There's going to be a millennial temple. Fourth thing, the nations of the world are all going to stream to Jerusalem to see Jesus. Again, the city will be lifted up, the chief of the mountains. Every nation will want to go to Israel. I mean, right now, Israel is one of the most hated countries in the world, but not for long, not when Jesus is there. Jeremiah says, at that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it. Isaiah says, it will come about in the last days. Many people will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Can you imagine a whole world that says, I want to hear Jesus teach. I want to walk in his paths. That is going to get more and more rare, isn't it? Listen to what God says through Zechariah about this. The inhabitants of one city will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. I love this statement. He says, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Jewish people were so hated in our world, in our fallen world today. Now it's grab hold of a Jew by his garment and say, take me with you to see your God. It's amazing. Isaiah chapter 60 goes into great detail about how the Gentile nations will come with offerings of worship to Jerusalem, wealth beyond what we can even imagine. And he says, your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings leading in procession. Everybody will want to go to see Jesus. Now, can you imagine the joy of this? Taking a pilgrimage to Israel. Now listen, to see Jesus with your eyes. To hear the voice of Jesus teaching in his house. Does that not give you chills? That's that's the hope of the ages, that we will be in his presence, that we will see him and hear him reigning from Jerusalem in his glorified form. That's amazing. Last two and we'll be done. The earth will experience a great restoration to health, especially there in the land. Isaiah 35 says, The wilderness and the desert will be glad and will rejoice and blossom. You've been to Israel, you know that most of it is desert and wilderness, right? Waters will break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The scorched land will become a pool 
and the thirsty ground springs of water. Joel, the prophet Joel, who talks almost single-focusedly about the day of the Lord, promises this, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. There's a healing coming to the land. And lastly, human beings also will experience a great healing and restoration of their bodies. Now, real quick, this is a freaky thing. In the millennial kingdom, there will be glorified human beings who have come back with Jesus, but there will also be flesh and blood, normal human beings, if you want to call them, who survive the tribulation period and enter into the millennial kingdom. So you'll have both of those types of people. Those fleshly saints, they'll all be believers, but those fleshly saints who survived, they will procreate during the millennial kingdom. There will be generations over the thousands of years who will be born. The fleshly ones who procreate, they will have Adam's sin nature. That leads us to the story at the very end, which we're not doing today. Adam, write that down. We're not doing that today. But of those flesh and blood human beings, there will be great healing and restoration. Isaiah says, the eyes of the blind will be opened. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. He even reports that we will begin to live much longer times during that period. Not just the 80 whatever plus years we get now, but we will live for hundreds of years because the atmosphere will change and our bodies will be restored. So we're going to live to long years. Guys, can you imagine the joy of this life on earth where both the creation is being restored where our bodies are being healed, where all the aches and the pains and the sickness and the disease of the fallen world are in the process of being reversed. What a joy. This is our hope. This is the hope of the ages. This is it. All right, I'm wait. Wow. Way out of time. So let me just wrap up. The point of all this is very simple. I realize that we live in uncertain times. I do. And I realize that there's the potential for us to worry and the potential for us to shrink back at what's going on around us. But friends, look at our future. Look what God has promised. Look what He's spoken about so long ago through His prophets. Everything He's talking about is coming to pass. Why would we doubt that these will come to pass as well? Do you trust God's Word in these things? And will you stake your life on it? That's an important question to ask ourselves today. And by the way, it only gets better once a millennial kingdom closes. When that period is done, that age closes, it gets better. Right? The eternal state comes. Listen, when that happens, evil is completely destroyed forever. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire. The curse of the fall fully reversed and every single thing will be healed and restored back to its original condition when God said it's good. So it gets even better. But let me read just last passage from Revelation 21. And Kaylee did such a great job reading it this morning, but let me read it again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the ultimate hope of the ages, right? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. 
and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. It is done, Jesus declares. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And the Spirit and the Bride say, say come, right? Like Simeon and like Anna, we are in that waiting period right now. I don't know how long it's going to be, but we need to wait with that same anticipation of what God is going to do. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's bow our heads. I'm going to give you a little bit of time because I've been talking way too much to just have some quiet time with the Lord right now and praise Him. Just praise Him for His promises to you. Praise Him for His plan. Praise Him for the hope that we have of the age to come and even the eternal state. Spend some time praising Him now.